Pastor Kevin Woodland Friends here. Uh, on sabbatical, there are speakers at my church uh, while I'm on sabbatical, but there's no tech crew because I'm the tech crew. Yep, my church is that small. But today, my church is hearing from the Gideons. Don't you love the Gideons? That's not a joke. It's really important what they do about uh, getting the scriptures out to people. And uh, because of that, I wanted to release a sermon in my what I've been calling my sabbatical vault about the Word of God being true. Uh, this comes at the end of a series I did called The Word of God. Um, so it was actually preached February 18th. 2018, and again, it's called The Word of God is True. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We've been in this series, Word of God, uh, The Word of God, for about a total of six weeks. And uh, it's really a topic that we could tackle quite a bit and be in forever, but that's not the plan. In fact, I plan on ending this series today. Why don't I take you, though, uh, real quick again, what we have studied thus far. First of all, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that the Word of God is Jesus. Secondly, we saw that the Word has power, that God never speaks a fleeting word. Thirdly, we noted that the Word of God convicts us. And fourthly, we declared that the Word is useless, the Word of God is useless, without the Holy Spirit. And, uh, last week, though, we saw that the Spirit convicts us, though, and matures us with the Word of God. So the Word of God is also in just as indispensable as the Spirit. None of this matters if... The Word of God is not true. I would be doing a pointless endeavor every week if I got up and preached from a book where all of its claims were untrue. So I find it fitting, really, to end our series by showing you that the Word of God is true. We're, and we're going to be doing that today by reading the words of an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, uh, and Peter. In fact, we'll be in 2 Peter 1, so I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word. We're going to be reading uh, verses 16 through 21. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. We read, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but... We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all. Know that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we open it up, that your spirit would be present, interpreting the things that we're reading, because we trust that you wrote them. We trust that you're present with us today. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we should live, died the death that we deserve to die so that we might live the life that we should live. And we pray that your spirit would be convicting us and guarding our hearts today, and we pray that you would, you would have your way in our hearts. So I pray you'd get me out of the way, that you would say what you would desire. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember showing up August of 1994, driving into Kamei. That's whenever we moved here. And we were in our 1989 Dodge Aries, and my dad's Ford Ranger, and we had just driven, I think, four long days, if not longer. We had been moving from Syracuse, New York, but we had first driven south from New York to Georgia, to spend some time with my dad's parents and family in Vidalia, Georgia. And as we came upon Hill Street in Kamei, we saw my mom's parents. And I, I had certainly had met them before, but here I was at age five, and I was meeting them really for the first time for me, being cognizant of meeting them. My grandma, Fran Woods, and my grandfather, Gene Woods. And... Um, I remember one of the first things my grandpa Gene wanted to do that same day in August 94. I was just getting out of the car after driving in from who knows where, maybe Montana, maybe Wyoming, I don't know. And uh, anyways, getting out of that car, and my grandpa Gene wanted to go get something at a thrift grocery store called Thrifty Cloningers. And maybe they forgot something to feed us that night, I don't know, but he wanted to take me with him, and I broke down in tears because I was certain that I was going to be back in the car for another week's trip, and I didn't want to go back into the car. So my grandfather just laughed, and he took a crying five-year-old kiddo alongside him. He took me to Cloningers, and my tears were quickly dried as I gladly got out of the vehicle and started running around Cloningers. It's where the, the credit union is today. So thus begun a long and close relationship with my grandfather, Gene. We were pretty tight. We went on walks together. We cheated against each other in card games. I got spoiled with ice cream and milkshakes from him. I had sleepovers at his house. We watched movies. He took me to the mill at times, so I got to see where he worked. In April of 2000, he passed away from complications due to lupus. Around the end of 2000, my oldest sister moved to Moscow to start going to college, and her twin, our brother, moved away to Wyoming and got married to a gal that we soon found out really wanted nothing to do with our family. And, and this whole trauma came throughout 2000, 2001. In September 2001, something rather drastic happened in the world in New York City, and 
And I didn't know what it meant at age 11, but it was making everyone else nervous, so it made me nervous. Around the spring of 2002, I believed it was, is when I heard that my brother, who already lived a long day's drive away in Wyoming, was now moving with his wife and wife's family who didn't like us, and he was moving to South Carolina. And all these, these tragedies and problems started to weigh heavy on my heart. I remember one night, I don't know if I was 11 or 12 by this time, knocking on my parents' door. I came in and I was crying and I was unloading on them all this pain I was feeling from the death of my grandfather and from our family felt like it was breaking up with my oldest siblings leaving the home and, and was America going to go to war. And, and one of the first things my mom said to me was what? She said, Kevin, what's that verse that you have been remembering. Something I was remembering in church. And I knew it immediately, and it said, this verse was, Though the mountains be shaken, and the hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord your God, who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54.10 Probably NIV, and again, I have been remembering it for church. few things. First, my mom directed me to Scripture, which told me that the world could fall apart, but God still loves me, and He is still my source of peace. This was a very relevant word for me, because my world was falling apart, but there my mom reinforced for me that God was my source of consistency and peace when nothing else could be in my life. Now logic tells me this. I don't think my mom was doing that haphazardly as in, oh, throw a verse at the kid. But my mom believed that I would find great comfort in the Word of God because my entire family believed that the Word of God is true. My mom was saying, what does God say to his loved ones when their worlds are falling apart? And I knew what God said because he told me. He told me that the world could fall apart and he'll still love me and he'll still give me peace. Paul says as much in Romans 8 as well. The Bible consistently claims it is the very word of God. Starting off in Genesis chapter 1 by saying, In the beginning, God. The human authors, inspired by God, inform their readers at times in the Bible that the God, that God himself has instructed him to write things down. We first read about this in Exodus 17. We hear there that Moses was told to write a, about a war between the Israelites and the Amalekites. As Isaiah, uh, Exodus 17, verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses continues throughout his books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, to state that it was God who told him to write these things. In Exodus 34, verse 1, we read God told Moses to write these things. And then 
Exodus 34, 27 through 28, we're told. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you in Israel. So he was there and with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Other places where Moses states he's writing these things commanded by God are Numbers 33.2, Deuteronomy 31.24. Besides Moses, we see similar verses pointed to Joshua to write in Joshua 24.26, to Isaiah to write in Isaiah 30, verse 8. Jeremiah needs to write, Jeremiah 32 and 36.2 and 28. God told, tells us Habakkuk to write in Habakkuk 2.2. And lastly, God tells John to write in Revelation over and over. There are other passages that God instructs people to write. I won't go over them. But other times we're not told that God specifically told the people to write it down as words from the Lord. We think about the book of Nehemiah, and as you read through it, it seems like it's more of a journal. We know that the Psalms were written for songs in the community to worship. We know that the evangelists were writing the gospel so that people might believe. Luke is doing it as a research project funded by a wealthy person. And then the epistles are written as instructions from one pastor to other churches. And, and these are all writings for different reasons, none of which claim to be, to be uh, moved upon to write such words because God 100% told them. Nevertheless, we know that they are inspired and true in the very word of God. And one of those epistles is Peter. And here again he states... 2 Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Myths, whenever it's used in the New Testament, is always used in a negative sense. Paul uses this word in writing to Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 1.4, he tells them to encourage his church to not, quote, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And in his second letter to Timothy, he warns uh, that, that folks in the last days, quote, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The word is synonymous with fable. It is definitely understood to be false, like a legend and not based in reality. And so Peter, before he's about to die because of believing in his faith that Jesus Christ was and is God in the flesh and died for our sins, Peter states on his proverbial deathbed, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's ready to die for it. And he's saying, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, and this is important because today, for many non-believers, their primary doubt to the word of God is that they are cleverly devised myths. They've been colluded upon by the writers. In forensic science, so we're researching homicides and cold cases, 
There are two types of, of evidences usually allowed in court, uh, direct evidence and then circumstantial evidence. Now, most cold cases and even, in, and even homicides in courts are really entirely based on circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence is reliable eyewitnesses or a confession or maybe a videotape of the person plainly showing who it was doing something uh, circumstantial evidence, though, would be plenty of eyewitnesses, maybe catching glimpses, maybe no or maybe cruddy video footage, maybe clues at the scene connecting with the suspect, maybe a, a torn piece of clothing in a fight and finding a torn jacket that matches that piece of clothing at a suspect's residence, perhaps a neighbor saying they saw what they thought to be the car that matches the make and model and color of a car that the suspect has, so there we might have two clues, two circumstantial evidences, talking about maybe a torn piece of clothing and maybe a car that we understand. And so the case is, is building. And so the more circumstantial evidence, the better. And so again, already in our fake case, matching clothing, matching make and model vehicle, possible eyewitnesses, we have something almost ready to go to court over. Besides Peter saying that he and the apostles were direct eyewitnesses to Jesus, I want to give you 12 circumstantial evidences to the truth and the validity to the scriptures. First, we have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts written by scribes representing all or part of the New Testament. Over 99% of the original text can be constructed beyond reasonable doubt. That one percent, often a discrepancy, shows that shows that shows up in what Bible you have compared to another Bible. It contains, though, that one percent contains nothing of doctrine that cannot be proven elsewhere in the ninety-nine percent agreed upon manuscripts. Secondly, the Authors of the Gospel and the Book of Acts were in great situations, were in great times and locations to write reliable texts about Jesus. Matthew and John are of the twelve disciples. Mark is writing. Mark, the Gospel of Mark is writing as he's being dictated to by Peter. Mark and Luke were companions of Paul, and Luke himself claims he talks to eyewitnesses and he's used writings already available. Thirdly, the entire New Testament was written within the century of their original happenings. The earliest books uh, written within about a dozen of years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Many believe 1 Corinthians to be one of the closest books written to the time of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Fourthly, Jews at this time were meticulous in their usage and their accuracy that they passed on by oral tradition. This means that when written down, they were not deviated from by history because their primary way of communicating history was orally. Fifthly, in, in usage of this as well, freedom was expected and given to framing stories to make their point. In other words, whenever we see discrepancies in the gospel accounts, such as Matthew records two people at this event, but Luke records only one person at that event or whatever. We know that for story reasons, not because 
uh, of somebody or both as lying. In fact, when it comes to police seeking testimony, they hope to hear differences from eyewitnesses over the same situation. This is because after traumatic events, the brain of each person likely focuses on what they can remember and perhaps what was most important to them. And so it's easy to think that a person's shirt was red while another person says that that same shirt was blue. Or, or that suspect ran out the back door, but another eyewitness remembers that it was the side door. And if every testimony from every witness was 100% lined up accurate, the court would know that this was pre-planned and a pre-agreed story. My point is, is that gospel disagreements, though already small enough to prove really unnecessary to mention, they are nevertheless, any discrepancies actually add credibility to what the gospel accounts are describing to be true. Sixth, Luke's prologue, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it parallels other historians of the time, such as Josephus and Herodotus. The point being, Luke was writing what he knew to be history, and he was writing it as a historian, so he expected his readers to read it as actual, factual history, not a cleverly devised myth, as Peter would put it. Seventh, you ever open up the gospel accounts and say, wow, that's, that's hard stuff, Jesus, such as he who does not hate his father, mother, sister, and brother cannot be my disciple. The word hate there really meaning esteem less. Matthew actually translates that Jewish idiom for us, and he says, He who loves father, mother, sister, brother more than me. But Jesus also made claims to his second coming, which the gospel writers would not know if he was true about that or not. The fact that Jesus' hard teachings for both in their time and in our time remains tells us that we're reading about a true person who said hard things. The point being that if it was all false, it is more than likely presumptuous that the writers would make Christianity as appealing as possible. A living, breathing Jewish man saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through me would be a hard pill for most people to swallow, and in fact it still is. But we know it was said because it remained untarnished as recorded by an eyewitness named John who heard Jesus say that. Eight circumstantial evidence. We don't see in the Gospels Jesus talking about situations that really mattered to the first generation of Christians after Jesus. In other words, can Gentiles be saved? The early church had to have a council about that. Did Jesus really teach a trinity when he said, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What baptism does Jesus want us to have? Does he want us to have John's with water or or the spirits with fire? Does Jesus want us to have both? The fact that, that these things are unclear and decided later tells us that if people were making up a religion from Jesus, you would think that they would have thoroughly made Jesus explain the hard stuff. And the fact that we don't have Jesus giving clear answers to difficult theological practices tells us that this is likely because we are hearing what was recorded that Jesus taught on, no more or no less. Ninth, world history 
and worldly historians testify to the truthfulness of first century uh, Jerusalem and, and Judaism. I mentioned Josephus here and there in my sermons. That guy is a Jewish historian who did not believe in Jesus as a Christian. Nevertheless, he speaks about events from the Gospels. He talks about some guy named Jesus of Nazareth because these are all historical realities. And we have about a dozen historians around the time of Jesus who talked about things that the Gospel mentions as if they actually happened because they actually happened. Tenth. Archaeology regularly confirms for us the claims of the Bible. Whether it be unearthed ruins or geographical facts, topography, customs, artifacts, tombs, and inscriptions, usually if the Bible mentioned it, it's usually found. Eleventh, the earliest writings of the New Testament, in other words, many of the epistles, the, the later books that come after the Gospels and Acts, they were written actually chronologically before the Gospels, they testify, though, to the gospel's truth and accuracy. I mentioned that many believe 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest New Testament books. This is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about Jesus' resurrection, and he states that many who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection are still alive. And what Paul is saying then is he's, he's saying, go talk to them. Hear from their lips. Besides the apostles, there are about 500 witnesses, he says. It seems to me that if Paul was lying, that is quite an audacious claim to make that could be easily checked out. Just go to Jerusalem, start talking about a crucified Jewish Messiah whose followers claimed his resurrection and see what happens. Peter mentions in our text today in 1 Peter the Mount of Transfiguration, his personal eyewitness of something that the Gospels talk about. The beginning of 1 John is a lot like our passage here in Peter. John states at the beginning of his letters, we've seen him with our own eyes, we've touched him, we know he is real. Twelfth, I want to land on the most controversial doctrine of the Christian faith to be the most compelling testament to Christianity's honest historical truth. And that is the resurrection. Why is this a good circumstantial evidence, the resurrection? Kind of like our last one, Paul's a pretty audacious liar if he's lying. Check out my story. Christ is resurrected. Go here for yourself. As I stated when we talked about the resurrection, whenever we were in our series in Mark, there was not some more inclined tendency on the part of people to believe in resurrection at the time of Jesus. They were still humans back then. They were like us. <laughs> so there's a reason the Gospels paint Jesus' disciples to be doubters and disbelievers before Jesus says, feed me, I need food, touch my wounds, it's really me. Dare you to, to read right after the resurrection, read Luke's account right after Jesus is resurrected. And just count and really look at how many times the word doubt and disbelieve and, and unbelieve is in there. If Christians were making up a story, they made it up well, and they literally died for what they made up. Everyone was martyred because they believed Jesus historically and physically resurrected. And 
if this was made up, the gospel writers have all the wrong people in all the wrong places. You do not put woman at the tomb because in that day their story is not held up in court. It was fake if you put, if you put men there. That would be better. But in the gospel accounts we find that women are at the tomb. And then you would have to pay those men off to keep up the story if you were making this up. You don't indict someone as powerful as the high priests to pay off the guards at the tomb to lie about Jesus because that's a pretty serious libel if that's false. And your gospel story is going around. And if you want to be thought much of, you do not put the disciples in the gospel accounts running away and hiding when your Messiah is being crucified. You don't make Peter the leader of the disciples and honestly, kind of the leader of the church after Jesus, you do not make him denying Christ in his darkest hour. This is all because nothing was made up here. This is all true. And what we see is true history, not sugar-coated. Back in our text, I just gave you 12 circumstantial evidences. Back in our text, Peter says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mount. Do you hear it, Peter? I hear it clearly. Do you hear him saying, I was there. I was there. When somebody moves to Woodland and they're coming up the hill and they see a, a bunch of relatively newly planted trees and then they make a comment about that, what would you likely tell them? You might start an entire conversation that goes like this. How about I tell you about August 2015 and a little something that, that happened up here. And if they were to start responding, oh, the church didn't have that much food in the basement, and oh, there weren't that too many close calls, I bet, some fire you're talking about. Oh, come on, that, that vehicle didn't show up at the right time. Thirty people defending the hill with fire all around. Yeah, right. What's more, suppose you wrote memoirs down about this fire, and then 30 to 40 years you find that people might be doubting you. Listen, I know dead people do not rise, and God visiting earth in human flesh is not something that just happens here and there. It's why it's called a miracle. It's why our Bibles were written, and it's why Peter, a living, breathing, history-attested-to person, is saying, we are not lying here. We saw him ourselves. Peter says, I saw him with my own eyes. He recounts a story a gospel account that others seem to remember and Luke writes about and Mark writes about and that is when Jesus of Nazareth takes Peter and James and they head up to this mountain excuse me, Peter and John and uh, another miracle happens on top of this mountain two people show up and somehow everybody there knows that it's Elijah and Moses two prophets and what's more, the sky thunders God's voice. Peter hears this. This is my beloved 
son with whom I am well pleased. That doesn't happen every day, and Peter is not saying that it does. It's kind of miraculous. So is 30 people defending an entire hill from fire, but that still happened. And what happened with Peter still happened. So not only are there 12 circumstantial evidences, there is the eyewitness of Peter who just spoke the testimony of God. And as I said, Peter isn't the only one who heard, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In fact, Jesus' accusers heard Jesus say as much from his very mouth. We go over to Luke, the historian who questioned eyewitnesses, and we read in Luke 22. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. Direct evidence from God on the mountain. Direct evidence from Jesus himself. Peter, though, he wants to add a 13th circumstantial evidence. I had 12, but Peter says, hold up, Kevin, you're just talking about the New Testament. And I was. Peter says, I tell you, Jesus is real. I saw him. And what's more, his appearance showed us that the Old Testament is real. Now, the New Testament covers just a a few decades of history. The Old Testament covers a few thousand years of history. And we have this weird tendency that really amounts to an untrusting heart. I wonder if some of us think that we think that the older a book is or a record is, the less likely we are to believe in it. Now, the funny thing is this is really just the case, I think, with the Bible. Who knows, maybe some read history books in in schools and think, oh, that didn't happen, but I've never met those people if there are out there. And the funny thing is, is there's really, there's a, there's really this, this untrustingness with the Bible. But a few scientists might see a few scratches in a cave and then take a rock sample and then say, oh, that was done by a prehistoric ape-like man four billion years ago with a piece of chalk on a rainy day and many people are like, I'm in, I believe it. But we read legible words by educated scribes about miracles on mountaintops, and we say, I don't know about that. Peter says, since I believe in Jesus, and you should believe me at my word, says the man who is about to be crucified upside down for not recanting of his testimony, the Old Testimony, excuse me, the Old Testament is true too. Here's what Peter says. And we have the prophetic word more, for, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, By the Holy Spirit. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What does Peter mean by that? Did you know that Jesus fulfills literally over 350 prophecies? 
Well, let me give you a few examples. I want to show you how specific these prophecies are. These aren't vague prophecies, right? Like, it's not like, and the building will be on a hill with a river at the bottom of the hill. Oh, is that talking about Woodland Prince Church? Could be. Um, try, and the virgin will give birth. Right. Like, like that doesn't happen every day, but that's in Isaiah 7.14, and Jesus fulfills that. He will come from Bethlehem. You just named a city there. That's Micah 5.2, and that's a specific name. That's not a vague... He will come from a place where the trees surround the rock or, you know, or something like that. Bethlehem was named. My hands and feet are pierced. Dogs encompass me. My God, why do you forsake me? Psalm 22, holy moly, you're talking about the crucifixion only a thousand years before it happened. Or, or and the son carried his own wood up the hill after arriving with two attendants. Oh, that's another great prophecy about the crucifixion. Actually, that was about a guy named Isaac, and uh, in whom Abraham almost sacrificed about 2,000 years before Jesus, Jesus was crucified. Without going into our first sermon again, we see that the entire Old Testament, both prophecies and stories, are all fulfilled in Jesus. And I say stories, I do still believe that they are historically um, happening. Furthermore, if you believe Peter and John at their claims... Namely, that Jesus is God, and if you believe all the people in the New Testament who say that Jesus is God, this should add weight to every word that Jesus says. And Jesus speaks of Old Testament writers by name as if they were real people. And we see the 13 glaring evidences of the New Testament being real It is a small step to know that the Old Testament is real. So what? Why am I pushing all this? God entered into human history in the person and the work of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He proved himself to be the Messiah. He died brutally on a cross for our sins. His apostles went to their graves, believing and proclaiming it. Their efforts and the efforts of their followers generation after generation after generation until finally on one corner of this earth around the globe there's a couple of dozen folks meeting in a friend's church right now, and I'm here. That happened years ago, though, so, so what? What if I told you that the Word of God is true, and truth is always timeless? Peter gives a practical application in these verses. I wonder if you saw it. Here's his application. Here's his plug-in for his readers. He says, and we have the prophetic word, talking about the scriptures, more fully confirmed to what you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. All of this is true, and it is true all of the time. God people, God told people to write words down. They did. God then showed up as the Word Himself. He did. He died for our sins. He validated that these were His words, and He tells us to continue to partake in His Word, to spread His Word, and He, the Word, lives in us so that we might be the Word to other people. 
We would do well to pay attention to this, and I love the image. It is like a lamp shining in a dark place. You don't have to read the news for too long, especially this week after another sad shooting. You don't have to watch the TV for too long. You don't have to talk to unbelievers for too long to realize that we live, we live in a very dark place. Nothing seems to be consistent, doesn't it? You think the world is going one way and then you wake up and you realize it's still dark. It's like losing a loved one through disease one moment and then losing family members through lifestyle changes and broken marriages another moment and then when that seems out of control, a national catastrophe like 9-11 hits and before you know it, it, there's the 12-year-old running into his parents' room where he is reminded, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In this world where everything is questioned and nothing seems consistent, we have a source of consistency, and we are to be a voice of reason, and we are to be the salt of the world, the preservative. We are to be a light on a hill, light, wisdom, revelation, and we have it all in us, and we have it all with us, and we have truth in a world that so desperately needs it. So let us be immersed in the word of truth, so that we can then in turn be truth and light in a world of darkness. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I've been reminded again and again this week how sad and how ironic it is that many of us have access at our fingertips not just with the physical Bible or people like me who has tons of Bibles, not just to just the computer with loads and loads of sermons uploaded from many devout followers and godly followers of you, not just that. We, we have our phone in which we could either use for sinful means or download Bible apps or download sermons or listen to videos. Father, we have access to consistent, unyielding enlightening truth every single day. And yet, we still manage to desire the darkness at times. We still manage to get overwhelmed with the darkness, to, to listen to other people's philosophies and to listen to other dark lies and deception and deceit. And I don't know why we ever wonder where is the light and where is the truth at whenever we have people screaming at us who were there, who saw you, who saw you resurrect, who know that you're living, ruling, and reigning today. We have people like Peter saying, we're not proposing myths here. We saw it with our own eyes. And then you, in your divine providence, Father, have preserved these words for us for the generations that, that really amounts to that we're left without an excuse. And the only thing that's holding us back is our sin and our desire to not believe it. Oh, Father, if there's anyone here that needs to believe it, 
If there's anyone here that doesn't believe it, I just pray that your spirit would move on them. They've heard the truth, but it means nothing if your spirit hasn't been speaking to them. So Holy Spirit, speak and bring people to salvation through your Son, in Jesus Christ, and show them the truth and give them the desire to know more truth so that we can in turn be truth to a world that desperately needs it. I pray these things in Jesus' name.